he will hold me fast is a message that we as those who are held fast by God's grace that message we have an opportunity given our day given our circumstances given where our community and our world is we have an opportunity to share that message like we have never had in any of our lifetimes because there's never been this kind of situation in our lifetimes where so many in so many different places so badly needed to know that they are being held that they can be held by God there's never been an opportunity like that in many of our lifetimes because all of humanity all every human being that ever has or ever will draw breath deals with the reality of suffering I don't care who you are or where you are. Every human being deals with the reality of suffering in one way or another. We get sick. Our families have difficulties. We lose our jobs. We can't deal with our children or we can't have children. Our spouses are unfaithful. Our kidneys fail. Um, You know... There are more people starving on the face of this earth right this minute than we can even imagine. There's earthquakes, there's hurricanes, and the West Coast is burning up. So I don't care where you are or who you are, suffering is a reality. And I so appreciate Jason posting a, um, a little 11-minute segment um, earlier this week. It was a couple of years ago that uh, Jonathan Darville um, spoke at Southwestern and He spoke on suffering and the good life. Now, if you didn't have a chance to see that video, I hope you'll take a minute and look at it. Jonathan has chronic Lyme's disease, and the medicine that he's been taking over the years for Lyme's disease basically has caused his system to not be able to process nutrition, to process food. He's literally, he was literally starving to death. And it's caused him unimaginable pain and and all of that. But so he accounts from a firsthand standpoint this understanding that suffering is a part of life, indeed suffering is a part of the good life. Now that doesn't make any sense maybe to some of you as you hear that. Suffering is a part of the good life. And we can deal with suffering, he says in the beginning of that little video, one of four ways. There's basically four ways to do that. And these are, these are universal. We can do it like Buddha or like the Eastern meditation, many, many of the Eastern religions. We can approach suffering like Buddha who who was a pantheist and basically said that God is in everything and everything is God. And, and Buddha said that the world is bad and you need to escape it. And you do that by ignoring suffering, suppressing your desire, and as Jonathan says in his video, meditating under a tree. Or you can do it like Hugh Hefner taught a generation to do it. Um, He is what Jonathan calls a debased naturalist, which basically means that the world is blind. We're going to die and rot. So we might as well do whatever. Hugh Hefner's answer to suffering is avoid it, avoid suffering, indulge your desires. And Darvel says, smoke the tree, which is what Hefner did. The third approach is 
similar to that, but with, with, with kind of a different focus, he points to John D. Rockefeller, who we called a noble naturalist, whose lifestyle was one to mitigate suffering, manage desire, and donate trees. Just good works type of thing. The fourth approach is the approach that we learn from Jesus, who sees this world as good, but broken. Broken because of human error, broken because of sin. And Jesus stepped into this brokenness. And he steps into it, and he vicariously absorbs suffering. He takes our desires and redeems them. And says that one day it's all going to be restored because he hung on a tree and shed his blood there. So if we look at suffering and the world and the good life through the eyes of Christ, then we understand that this world was created good. Sin broke it. It will be restored, but it's being restored at a great cost to our God. And Jesus came and entered into our brokenness. And took our suffering on himself. And takes our desires that God has given us and redeems those and shows us what it is to have good desires. Godly desires. And to do so in light of the life that we have in Christ and the reality of the resurrection that is to come. And so we can look at suffering in that way and see then that as we've seen all the way. And I, Jason, and we've all talked about this. You know, that the idea that I would preach through Psalm 119 really just kind of came to me over the course of a couple of weeks. And I really had no goal in preaching it other than preaching it. I didn't have a vision of what was going to be accomplished through it. I really didn't. But as we have worked our way through Psalm 119, and given the context of our time, and given what's going on in many of our lives, we, we are learning, not just from the Psalms, but even from Psalm 119, week after week, letter after letter, verse after verse, what it looks like to suffer and to do it well, and to do it under the good hand and good purposes of God, right? I mean, we are learning that. That's, that's what we should be learning as, as we go through this. And to see that, that, God, come, that God is, as, as we've seen in the psalmist, that That God afflicts us out of his faithfulness. And he does so for his glory. And he does so for our good. And he does so for the good of others, as we've seen. And that as we walk through that time of suffering, we are drawn closer to him. And we learn more of him than we ever would in our easy chair. We learn more of him in our suffering than we ever do in our comfort. And as we do that, we are being more equipped and we're being better able to serve the people around us. Darvel says in his little 11 minute that we suffer to share the one who suffered to save. We suffer to share the one who suffered to save. And as we take on the sufferings of others as he did ours then we begin to learn a biblical understanding of justice. That as we come along beside those that are hurting and share their hurt with them, we begin to learn what it means that God is one day going to make things right. So all of that, as we come to this section of the psalm, 
Because what we have learned through the Psalms and what we were learning through one, Psalm 119 is, is the last thing I'm going to mention out of, out of Darvel's little talk is that God gives us opportunities to practice suffering and to practice it well and to do it faithfully and biblically. And he calls this the, the liturgy of suffering, if you will. And the world has a way, he points out, of they have a liturgy of suffering. The world's liturgy of lament, he says, is, is made up of four things. Binge-watching Netflix, a carton of ice cream, a bottle of vodka, and all-night shopping. All that you can do right from your living room. That's the world's way of dealing with suffering. Netflix, ice cream, vodka, and shopping. The Christian liturgy of lament is praying our pain, singing, singing our sorrow, and pressing into community. Praying our pain, singing our sorrow, and leaning in, pressing into community. This passage today is filled with questions. And we are given in our passage the right way to ask these questions and then we're given the answers. And often, and I've seen this over the years and you have too, you ever known somebody who knew they were sick but just refused to go to the doctor? They know something's wrong, but they're not going to go to the doctor. Tim Keller says that we do the same thing spiritually. He says, and he quotes John Newton in this, when suffering comes, prayer and Bible study are the first things that usually go. And in reality, he says, those are your only life preservers. And then quoting John Newton, he says, the chief means for attaining wisdom, which we've seen throughout Psalm 119, are the Holy Scriptures and prayer. The one is the fountain of living water. That's the scriptures. And the other is the bucket by which we draw. And that's prayer. And Psalm 119 is both the fountain. All of the Psalms are the fountain. And we also learn how to use the bucket and draw it out. So let's look, let's look at Psalm 119 today. And our passage begins in verse 81. And the psalmist writes, My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? Or one, one way to translate that, that way, that passage might be, how many days will I be under this? How long do I have to live this way? He seems to be asking. When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me, and they do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Do you hear that? 
This is how you pray your pain, sing your sorrow, and lean in to community. First, we see that the psalmist is saying, this is how things are, and things are not good. Okay? This is not my best life now. Things are not good. He says, I'm at the end of myself. I am dry, I am fragile, and I am pursued. He says, my soul longs for your salvation. My eyes long for your promise. When will you comfort me? I've become like a wineskin in the smoke. Just think for a second about those things. All of us can identify with this with this feeling, right? And if not from our own suffering, from walking through it with someone else. I've had loved ones walk through days like this, months, years like this. And in this dark place, it's easy, is it not, for us to lose our perspective? Is it not easy when we're in a tough place like that to kind of lose our grip on hope, even if it's just temporarily? And, and if we're in the valley of suffering for a long time, it's just a dark, dark place, and we're crying out, and we don't see any hope. We don't see the answer. We don't even see grace sometimes when we're in that dark place. We feel dried up. We feel fragile. We're just, I don't know what else to do. Where can I turn? I can't hold on any longer. I'm at the end of my rope. There's nothing else to hold on to. And what I hear David saying in this is I've been faithful, God. I've not forgotten your word, and look what it's gotten me. Look, look, look what it's gotten me. I'm confused. I'm disappointed. I'm hurting. I'm fragile. I feel useless, dried up. And you see what he does? <laughs> he, he faithfully and wisely tells these things to God. He's honest with God. And there's no condemnation in that honesty. A bruised reed, he does not break. And when it's just a smoldering wick, he does not put it out, Isaiah tells us. And Jesus did too. So he tells God what's going on. And he identifies these things from his own perspective and says, this is what's going on. And look at that metaphor that's there in verse 83. I've become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. He is dried up, cracked up, fragile, smoked up, dark. There is, there's, he's useless as a, a wineskin hung by the fire. Nothing. The flames, the heat, the suffering have just dried him up and he feels like he's finished but he's not completely hopeless in this because he he says i've not forgotten i'm not turned away from your word lord i don't understand and i'm at the end of myself but god i'm i'm still hanging on to your word i'm going to stay here and and he's recalling his word do you see there's a there's a principle here that's absolutely essential that there will come a time when all we have to hang on to is that word. And, and all we will have to hang on to is that word in our heart. Okay? Dementia will take our ability to read. And it may take our ability even to, mem- to remember. But those things that are stored up deep, and there's a frightening thought in this. What's going to come out when we can't control what comes out? Hmm? 
What a beautiful truth there is. Asking God questions and having faith in God are not mutually exclusive. Okay? It's when we suffer and when we ask God what's going on, that, that goes together. And admitting that is not faithlessness. It's, it's relying on Him. He says, how long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who oppose me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according. These arrogant people that we've seen over and over and over are tracking him down like an animal. And there is not one pit that's been dug. There's numerous pits. There's a pattern of pursuit. They are going hard after him. And they are not going to rest till he is taken down. Listen, there is nothing whitewashed here, is there? There's nothing here that's trying to gloss over. Unlike Buddha, Christianity teaches us that suffering is real. It is real. Okay? And unlike karma, suffering sometimes is unfair. And... Unlike the naturalist or the secularist, there is a meaning to suffering. The Bible gives us a meaning to suffering. Tim Keller says, and I'm going to refer to him a couple of more times this morning. Tim Keller was, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer back in June of this year. And so what he's written since then, and he had written... Profusely, wisely, as well as anybody, except maybe D.A. Carson, in my opinion. Keller had written more on suffering and had written well on suffering, better than most. But now that he's been dealing with pancreatic cancer, and this is the second time he's had cancer, it's been amazing to see some of the things that he's written. Here's what he says about our suffering. He says, there is a purpose to it. And if... Faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and more spiritual power than you can imagine. And that's where the psalmist says, I'm at the end of myself. I'm yearning. I'm looking out and not able to see right now your life, your salvation, your deliverance to me. I want it, but I, I just can't see it. This is, this is the reality of where he's at. And then he says, this is what I seek, secondly. I'm, I'm looking for your promise. I'm looking for your comfort. I'm looking for your justice. I'm looking for your help. I need help, he says. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? They persecute me with falsehood. Help me, he says. That verse 84, there's two questions in there. How long must your servant endure? And when will you do something about those who are persecuting me? That's how we pray our pain and sing our sorrow. How long, God? Lord, deal with this. And if you kind of flip those questions around, here's what you would hear. Lord, I've suffered enough. I've endured persecution enough. When are you going to do something about it? I'm trusting you. I'm holding on to your promise. I'm holding on to your word. And from my end, I think now would be a really good time to deal with it. Okay? I, I think now's a good time. Now, God might not agree. Doesn't seem to sometimes, right? So maybe most of the time, some of you would say. 
But this is what the writer is seeking. This is what he, he says. I'm fatigued. I'm worn out. The promise that I've waited for doesn't seem to be coming. You have said you would save me, but here I am in the middle of this, facing this. Nothing has changed. I've looked. I don't see any relief in sight. And when will you, when will you comfort me? Help! That's a legitimate prayer, right? Help! It doesn't even need it in Jesus' name and amen. It's just a, just, just a prayer. Spurgeon said, God's help is our hope. Whoever may hurt us, it matters not so long as the Lord helps us. For if indeed the Lord helps us, none can really hurt us. Many a time have these words been groaned out by troubled saints, for they are such as suit a thousand conditions of need, pain, distress, weakness, and sin. Help, Lord, will be a fitting prayer for youth and age, for labor and suffering, for life and death. No other help is sufficient, but God's help is all sufficient. Amen? Yeah. And here's how the psalmist waits, thirdly. This is how I wait. I hope in your word. I remember your promise. I trust in your love. In your steadfast love, he says, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. He also says in other places that that life is going to include, will include, promised to include suffering. Are those mutually exclusive? Is the good life and suffering two different lives, two different directions? No, it's the same life. And so the life that God offers offers us is not just merely existing. It's not just getting by. But it is filled with pain and suffering. It is filled with purposeful, intentional pain and suffering. And... The psalmist is just saying, I'm holding on to his promises. I'm holding on to his word. And if it had not been for those promises, if it had not been for his word, this path would have been too hard to walk. It's too much to deal with. I can't. And and what we see here, I love what Danny Aiken said when he was talking about this verse. He said, God has given us two companions to see us home. And they will never leave us. One is his love and the other is his word. His love and his word. In your steadfast love, give me life. And and these words have a ring to them as we look at this through the New Testament eyes of resurrection. In your covenant love, your steadfast love, your mercy and your faithful love that we've seen all throughout the Psalms. Restore my life. Revive my life. Give me life in the midst of death. Is what he's saying. Out of the overflow of your loyal, faithful love, give me that love. And and I know this. I know it's going to last, right? Do we not know that nothing is going to separate us from that love? We have his love. And we have his word. And David has said throughout the psalm, I hope in your word. I'm not forgetting your statutes. All your commandments are sure. I have not forsaken your precepts. And here he says, in your steadfast love, give me life so that... I may keep your testimonies. The life that Christ gives us 
is a life of purpose. And ultimately that purpose boils down to a life of walking with Christ in loving obedience. Walking with Him as a faithful servant. And so this testimony we've seen throughout Psalm 119, that actual word means this is God's testimony of Himself. This is what God says about Himself. It just speaks to this, this beautiful reality of God's word, that it's breathed out, that it's perfect. There's no error in it. And we can trust what God says. It just speaks of his inspiration of his word. And, 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 and flowing out of that is his faithful love to us. I love you, God says to us. And we say to him, I love you. And the life you've given me is a life that you've given me to live out in faithful obedience to you. So I can keep your testimony so I can walk with you in love and keep your commandments. And it's, it's, these, it's this beautiful picture of obedience. So this is how we suffer while we wait. This is how we wait while we suffer. I, I trust in your word. I trust in your promise. I have your love. I have your word. And what we know from this side of the cross, right, is we have Jesus. We have Jesus, who is the fulfillment of that love and the embodiment of that word. Right? We see that. The writer of Hebrews says, Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance, he says. Let us lay aside the weight and the sin that entangles us and run with endurance the race that is set before us. And verse 2 says, Looking to Jesus. Our eyes fixed on Him. And verse 3 says, Consider Him. And listen to what it says. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility... This thing is aggravating the mess out of me right now. Hang on just a minute. I'm going to fix that. All right. I should have done this before. All right. Now I'm good. Time out. All right. Time back in. Okay. All right. The trainer just left the field. We got water. We're ready to roll. Okay. We're good. Looking to Jesus and then consider him. Consider him who what? Who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And if we needed to be reminded of it, he says in the next verse, you have not yet resisted sin to the point of shedding blood. Jesus did. He did. He sweat drops of blood. Blood poured out of him. Not because he needed to resist sin. He was perfect in that. But he did shed his blood. And in that blood is the power that offers us forgiveness. And in that blood is the power that enables us to serve. In that blood is the power that saves, sanctifies us, makes us more like Jesus today than we were yesterday and more like him tomorrow than we are today. And that power takes us home. To the end, it, it, it finishes us. It gets us, gets us to the end. And the writer of Hebrews goes on to say that as we look to Jesus and as we consider his lifestyle, as we think about that verse that I read at the beginning, which was that he uttered out cries in his obedience, then we remember that we don't take lightly the discipline of God. We don't ignore it. Tim Keller 
says this about his diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. And most of us who've been around this long enough know that the outcome for pancreatic is not good. But here's what he said. He said, that suffering has driven me and Kathy, that's his wife, quote, to seek God's face as we never have before. He is giving us more of his sensed presence, more freedom from our besetting sins, more dependence on his word, things that we have sought for years, but only under these circumstances are we finding them. Only under these circumstances are we finding them. We have his word. We have his love. And we have Jesus. And so it's appropriate that this passage leads us to the communion table today. It's appropriate that we end up at this place. Because it it points us to the suffering of Christ The vicarious suffering of Christ, meaning he took our sufferings on himself. It leads us to the purposeful suffering of Christ. That he came to give us life and give it to us abundantly by his terrible substitutionary death. It leads us to the suffering of Christ that comes along beside us in the midst of our suffering and reminds us that He went through this, through the grave, and came out on the other side. And so will we. Amen? So will we. And this, this table, these elements, this, this bread that reminds us of His broken body and this cup that reminds us of His shed blood reminds us of that covenant love of God in the Old Testament sealed to Abraham as God passed through those animals and says, let this happen to me in Genesis 15 if I fail to keep this covenant. And it did happen to him. His body was broken. His blood was shed. And he did that to hold up his end of that covenant. We do nothing to hold it up. God holds it. He's faithful, even when we're unfaithful. Jesus was shut out. And separated from God so we can have access. Jesus was bound up and nailed to a cross so we can be free from sin. Jesus was alone so we can be in community. We can be brought to God and brought to one another. And as Keller says, Jesus took away from us the only kind of suffering that will ultimately kill us, which is separation from God. And he took that. He took that. And that's what this table is a reminder of. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you tell us in your word that we're not to come to this table casually. We're not to come to it too quickly. That we're to examine ourselves and we're to do that in light of your word. And I pray that, Lord, through what we've seen in Psalm 119 today, that we would be reminded that, Lord Jesus, the suffering you took upon yourself was for our sake. That the suffering you endured was what our sin deserved. That the death you died was the death that we deserved. And the resurrection 
that you accomplished is the promise that we hold on to. Thank you that when we walk through the fire, you are with us. Thank you that as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with us. And thank you that as we come to this table, we are reminded of how costly that companionship is to you. And how much we should treasure it. And thank you for reminding us at the table of what awaits. Thank you for reminding us of the fact that we are your children. We are your sons and daughters, God. Christ is our brother. And as children of the king, we can come to the king's table. So, Lord, help us today to taste and see that you are good. And as we do that, Lord, to be reminded of that goodness that we see in the cross. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.